And so we come here to the end of St. John's Gospel. It is my favorite gospel, as I think I've already said for some time. And here John writes beautifully. Right through his gospel, we've already, I've already told you about the themes that come through, the opposites, the light and the dark and the uh, new attitudes and the old attitudes, all the opposites that come through. He's given us colorful stories, he's given us memorable pictures, flowing themes, but above all, he's given us great theology. And in John chapter 20, now if you have a Bible with you or if you have your mobile phone and you want to get up John 20, um, that's permissible. Not Facebook John 20 or Twitter John 20 or WhatsApp John 20, but John 20. Um, you will see that we have here uh, at the end of the gospel, verses 30 and 31, which I think will come up onto the screen pretty much right now. So you don't really need your phones when I think about it, but there we go. John 20, we come to the empty tomb. Jesus' appearance to his disciples, uh, as we spoke about last Sunday. But there at the end of the chapter... This is where John brings this gospel to a natural end. And isn't it resolved beautifully? The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him you will have life by the power of his name. Kaboom, mic drop. That is the end, isn't it? If you were playing that on the piano, forgive me. If you were playing this on the piano, you wouldn't get the resolution to the end. So you'd get something like, the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. It resolves. But then you go to chapter 21, which, is that coming up? Starts later. Oh, what? What, what do you mean later? Like chapter 20, another chapter here. This is wrong. Later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. When you write a musical, I tell you from experience, when you write a musical, you come to the end of the, you, you come to the end of the story, and you come, I, I alluded to it last night, you come to this bit called the 11 o'clock point, the bit before 12 o'clock. 
It is the crucial point in a musical. It is the point where you come to the resolution and the revelation, the thing that makes the story rounded and beautiful. And you can leave it there. You can leave a musical at the 11 o'clock point. But a lot of writers say the 11 o'clock point, you need to give it a bit of time to the end, till the clock goes right round to 12. And that bit of time is when there is a summary, there is a quiet resolution, and everything goes back to stasis. Everything goes back to where it was. Everything goes back to balance. Everything almost goes back to the beginning of the story. And that's what kind of happens here. Now, this may have been added on a later date, but it's still a divine piece of writing. And so you get the change of pace. So when you've done that, and then you say, oh, later, Jesus appeared to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. And then you take yourself into a different key and then you play some nice quiet music as you read chapter 21, which is what we do now because here is this story of a miraculous catch of fish. It's almost an encore to the big thing, almost an encore. The storyteller returns to play something else to bring us from the lofty experience and into reality again. And this is the bit that confirms the resolution, confirms the revelation, and says to us, now this is the hope for you where you are. This is what you've got to do. Send you out of the theater, send you out of the cinema, send you out of wherever it is you are with a song in your heart, if you like, with a song in your heart. Jesus has risen. We can breathe again. Then this last piece helps us to actually come out of the word and go into the world with the glory of Jesus' life and purpose inspiring our hearts. So let's go a little bit deeper. At the end of Matthew, Mark and Luke's Gospels, we read that the risen Jesus told his disciples to go and wait for him in Galilee. Some translations will call this the Lake of Galilee. Some say it's the Lake of Genesaret. Some say it's the Sea of Tiberias. They're all the same place. And here they are waiting for him. They're not waiting idly by. They're not waiting twiddling their thumbs. In fact, after spending three years ministering with Jesus, what does Simon Peter do? He's not witnessing, he goes back to fishing, his occupation that he knows well. Now, fishing metaphor is one that has been widely used in mission and in evangelism right through the years in the church. How many of you have heard of this phrase, fishing? Some have, some haven't yet. Could you just pop your hands up again? Just, just interesting. Yeah, oh, right, so that's most of us. Thank you. Thank you. So you've all heard this phrase. And preachers have preached about it. They talk about having a wide open sea of their community to fish in. Others say that their parish is a small pool loaded with fish and that our calling is to go and catch them. When I went into training college in 1980, I'd never heard of the term fishing. You can imagine my surprise when I was sitting in a meeting, in one of those first Camberwell Holiness meetings when there were four or five hundred people on a Thursday night and there were some 200 cadets on the platform that was how it was in 1980 and I'm sitting there in my seat as a cadet and the field training officer comes up to me and he whispers in my ear as we're praying 
Cadet Minge, would you go fishing? What? Would you, would you go fishing? There's a gentleman in the fifth row. There's an empty seat beside him. Would you go fishing? So, no idea what I was supposed to do. So I went down to this gentleman in the fifth row and I said, Evening. <laughs> and he said, Evening. I said, All good with you? He said, Yeah. I said, That's fine then. <laughs> True. I only later learned what fishing meant. It's the kind of mission term you go and fish for people to come and join you. But I have a problem with the analogy. Because when you fish, the fish do not come of their own accord. You don't go to the sea and say, hi, little fish. There's a net. You want to jump, jump in the net? You don't do that. You catch them and they come wriggling and squirming. They don't want to be caught, let alone eaten. It's not a great mission method. Although, to be fair, there are some churches... <laughs> whose evangelical methods aren't too far removed from that. Though I should say, actually eating sinners is not recommended. <laughs> nor legal. But the analogy is more about location. The analogy is more about method. And what does this say to us? It says that God places us where we can be most effective. And yet there's the disciples in a fishing boat, in a fishing boat where they think they're going to be most effective in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, it's night time. And verse 3 tells us that that night they caught nothing. And then early in the morning, a voice from the shore asks, Friends, haven't you caught any fish? And they haven't. So the voice says, well, look, do it a different way. Throw your net over the other side. That's the ideal way to do it. That's the ideal location, the ideal method. I wonder sometimes if this is a metaphor for the fact that perhaps Peter was so drained that he'd lost his vision and nothing was happening. Nothing was happening in his life. I mean, he, he wasn't sure where Jesus was. Because once they heard and recognized Jesus, then we know that they caught so many fish that they couldn't lift the net into the boat. And Peter even jumps into the water to meet Jesus, and the rest of the disciples follow. The fish count is 153. Now, I'm one for numbers and one for metaphors and things, but we have to ask, how significant is this number? Many preachers have tried to see the significance in it, but some calculations are quite far-fetched. They almost go beyond fantasy. Let's have a look at these. Here's four ideas. 153 fish a representation of the tetragrammaton, the Hebrew name for God, which allegedly appears 153 times in the book of Genesis. Or is it a representation of each species of fish in the sea at that time? Or is it the argument that 153 is the 17th triangular number and that since 10, law, and 7, perfect grace, equals 17, then this is a picture of the law and the grace. 
the Catholics say 153, it's linked to their rosary. And then it comes to 150, then they add the Trinity on to make it 153. Or maybe it's just that the 154th got away. We don't know. I think actually what happened was that they couldn't believe, and this is why we need scholars and theologians, because they... If I had to decide this, I wouldn't quite know what to say, but I see these great scholars who who go into this really, really deeply, and they come and they actually say it was 153 fish. Why do they count it? Simply because they caught nothing all night. They'd been in the boat 10, 12 hours. And they say, look at how many we've got. Look, one, two, three, four, and it gets to 153. Simple as that. Why shouldn't it be? It's a lot of fish. And it prompts a question for us. Is this whole story a prophetic picture of the state of the mission in the worldwide church, including the army? You see, some theological standpoints will say that the fishing boat represents the church. And doesn't it feel sometimes, you know this better than me, I've only been here two years, doesn't it feel sometimes that we've been working on the boat, sometimes a little in the dark, trying to win men and women, but often the net is sparse. Does it feel like that? Discourages sometimes. And yet it takes Jesus to come and show us something that's right in front of our eyes. And all we need is the courage to change our way of doing things. To cast the net on the other side, it seems so obvious. How is it that trained fishermen who spent all night on the boat constantly fishing didn't actually change their methods in order to bring in more? Did they forget how to fish? Or were they so weary in the night time that they simply didn't have the energy to change direction? I think it was a mixture of both. We have to remember they'd had a tumultuous time as Jesus, as they'd seen Jesus tortured and killed. And then resurrected. Wow. Sometimes we become weary in well-doing. We want to see our church nets bursting like once they were, but it's not happening. The writer Max Lucado said, God never said that the journey would be easy, but he did say that the arrival would be worthwhile. Sometimes we have to stop and remember that when a nighttime experience comes and drains us, there is joy in the morning. There's a morning ahead. There's a resurrection to come. And more than that, there is a Christ who understands. You see, after the resolution of the resurrection, what happens? The Bible tells us it's morning time. Jesus shows up in the morning time, and he shows up as the ever-present Lord of their lives. He doesn't yell at the disciples, Why haven't you caught more fish? How come you sat in that boat all that time and you didn't change your methods, you didn't do this? He doesn't question what they've been doing all night without success. What does he do? He makes them breakfast. John 21 verse 12. Come and have breakfast, guys. It's fish. Come and have breakfast. And they celebrate together. We'll sing in the morning 
the songs of salvation. And for many years, we faithfully cast our nets over the West End of London. Many churches are taking time to consider how and why, where they do that. We're doing the same, aren't we, on our mission conversations with our mission journey. And we have to obey, like the disciples, obey the voice of the Lord, who is telling us, perhaps sometimes, to cast our nets differently. God's will can be tiring, but so exciting. As resurrection people, we listen to Jesus, we recognize his voice, obey his word. It's a morning beach breakfast. And with these disciples, as he has done through the three years he's been with them, Jesus reveals that he is also the host of their lives who provides them with nourishment. He actually cooks for them. He is with them right where they are. And that is a God of grace. Would you read these verses with me? Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. God saved you by his grace when you believed. for the good things we have done. Salvation is grace. It doesn't depend on how many people come in the net, as it were. The God of all time, beginning and end. Beginning and resolution. Alpha and omega. And the resurrection has brought that resolution around. The God who cooks breakfast for you displays a hospitality and grace that we have to show to everybody within reach of this place. The good ship number 10 cooks breakfast every week for the clients, giving resurrection hope, giving resurrection welcome, and in some parts, resurrection, resolution, finality. And there are some men and women who walk out of there with a new purpose because they've taken the signpost and they're being guided in the right place because that net was a saving net. And there is a sense where in our daily life and mission we are called to cast nets where we live and work. And the casting must be relevant, a different way or a different location. The call to mission and witness is individually ours. And so, you know what it's like when you see the little house on the prairie? Things like that, you know, right at the very beginning of the program, there's an aerial shot and the camera, you, there's a whole patchwork of fields and farm, a tiny little house way down there somewhere. And the camera comes down from the skies through the wispy clouds, the sun is shining, the shadows are moving, and it comes down and the house gets bigger and bigger, and then the action begins. And then at the end of the program, or the film, after the action and after there's been a resolution, the final part that leaves us with the experience in our hearts and minds. So the camera zooms slowly outward and we see that little homestead, that little scene, whatever it is. We see that from the air in the same way that we did at the very beginning 
of the story. So finally, let's let our imaginations go a moment. Imagine, would you, the beginning and the end of the greatest story ever told, as told by these four gospel writers. Imagine the, the very beginning. John, in the beginning was the word. And then the other gospel writers introduce us to the birth narratives. Right there in the beginning. But if you want to go right to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, you have to come 30 years. It's an aerial film shot. And the camera focuses on the bright morning sky. It slowly descends through light cloud. And it moves towards an expanse of water surrounded by hills. Galilee, Genesaret, Tiberias, that one expanse of water. And around this small sea are little villages and towns. And we home in on a sandy beach that's full of activity. And as the camera moves to sea level, it picks out one man who is standing on the beach and he's quietly watching everything. And there on the beach are men he's never met before. And this is the scene from Luke 5. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Genesaret with the people crowding round him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and talked to the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they'd done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both boats so full that they began to sink. That's the beginning of the ministry. Today we've had the tie-up in John 21. We've had the tie-up at the end. The gospel writers tell us the story of Jesus and then the final resolution takes place. And we find ourselves back on that same beach. The camera slowly zooms back out as Jesus and his disciples are eating breakfast, laughing, and joking. And in the distance, we see fishermen in their boats sailing in all waters, casting their nets far and wide, catching fish and bringing them in. And we have to believe that still today, Jesus will make himself known to us when we don't have the benefit of seeing him in the flesh day after day. And he graciously invites us and all people to the table and like the best fisherman once in that safety net he will never let us go amen of course the final resolution we still have to experience the final picture the kingdom of heaven the big revelation picture that John goes on to write about a little bit later. Certainly at home, Carolyn and I have often spoken, particularly in the last couple of years, um, about the resolution of heaven. 
And I just simply want to say to some of you here today, we've gone through bereavement experiences in recent weeks and months. There is a kingdom of heaven. That's the final resolution experience for us all. We do our bit here. We do what we can. The Lord graciously is with us, not condemning. And he will bring us to be with him where he is in the end.